Peace. Welcome back to the Water Podcast. My name is Daniel. I'm super excited about this episode. I have Mike Litvin with me. He's been a professional astrologer for five years. He's been specifically in the human design space for about a year and a half now. And so um, we have a really special episode planned for you guys tonight, especially if you're not already familiar with human design. But yeah, let's just get into it. How are you doing tonight, Mike? I'm doing pretty well. Good, good. So for those who aren't familiar, uh, what is human design? Um, damn, uh, I've got a lot of different elevator pitches to answer that question. I never know which one to use, but <laughs> I guess uh, one of the most general is that it's, it's similar to astrology. It uses a lot of the same data that conventional astrology uses, but it is more, it more prioritizes decision-making which it sees as a function of the body. So it's basically a astrological mechanism that's attempting to get you to be in touch with your body and to only use the body to make decisions and to sort of get the mind out of the way of living a more authentic life, you could say. And um, if you've seen a human design chart before, you can tell like at a glance, like superficially how different it looks from astrology. Cause you know, like in astrology, you've got the zodiacal wheel, and you've got these uh, shapes, these aspects between them or whatever. But when you look at a human design chart, it's like you're looking at the energetic anatomy of a person. You're basically looking at um, these energy centers, you know, similar to chakras or whatever. And you're getting the sort of readout of how those centers are speaking to each other, whether they're open and receptive or whether they're defined. So it's, it's a lot more mechanical, basically. Like sometimes I use the comparison that like, if astrology is an art book, then human design is like a strategy guide or an operating manual, people say a lot. It's like you've been driving around the vehicle of your body for however long you've been alive. And then finally, you you find the little operating manual for it. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, how does it differ from from others like it? Like, for example, the chart you referenced, does that like you have your natal chart in astrology, right? Does that does the chart like change or is it just like this is who you are you know what i mean yeah um it's basically from a human design perspective it's like a natal astrological wheel would be accounting for your mind only for your personality um and then the human design chart is sort of a synthesis between mind and between a sort of unconscious um biological intelligence that actually develops even before you come out of the womb and in the juxtapositions between basically these two intelligences, right? Your normal mundane everyday personality intelligence and then this unconscious physical intelligence, which, you know, you could think of as, you know how to catch a baseball, right? If a baseball is coming at you, you can just grab it. But if you try to use the mind to like plot out the trajectory of the baseball or whatever, that's going to take a lot longer. And these are sort of the two entities that we're dealing with and that we're, um, and that we're seeing how they relate to each other in like everyday life, basically. Because it's like your mind is always with your body, but they are still differentiated and kind of operating in tandem. Sure. Now, how did you get into it yourself? Like, I guess you could start with astrology and then human design, because I'm guessing there was a different, it looks like there were different time periods where you got into either. Um, yeah, yeah. I got into astrology first just because I started to observe transits um, and noticed that they seemed to have an effect. So I started paying more attention to them. And then I started reading for other people and kind of getting more into the work. And I, I mean, the thing that I was that I was always like really into astrology about was just sort of like the mythological vocabulary that it gives you, you know, kind of gives you like an alphabet of of myth, of story, of attitude, of character, you know, through those 12 signs and, and through the planets and everything, um, which is not, nice. when, which is great and it's fun and interpretive and very, very useful in like elaborating what the like landscape of someone's psyche is, you know, and I was giving readings through that system for several years or whatever, but then just like casually for friends, when I started to give more human design readings, I noticed how much more seen they felt like within a short amount of time, like how, like people can light up an astrology reading, like no question, but like invariably when I would give human design readings to people casually, it's like all of a sudden they're like getting these terms and these tools or whatever, 
these terms understand themselves like with a little more specificity than I was used to with astrology, but then also getting practices that they could just like start doing immediately. Like, you know, you find out someone's a generator and you can tell them wait to respond. And that's something that they can experiment with, you know, day of, you know, like you can just with human design, like it seems to give you a little more license to like, just start doing shit to like, just start living mundanely and like with different strategies at your disposal. So you do each reading with similar information, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you're entering the same information for sure. I mean, like a person's time of birth, basically. But um, the human design chart is also using this other, this other date that's about 88 degrees recessed of the sun from the moment of your birth. So it's not like you have to enter that date into. It's like any chart drawing program will just like figure that out for you. And then what you're looking at is basically a synthesis of those two times. So the date of birth and then usually about 88 days before that. Got it. And so in astrology, you have, you know, the signs. What do you have? What will be its equivalent in like human design? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. Well, I guess the gates in a way are the equivalent the gates are basically the um, receptors in each center that create pathways from one center to another, which creates circuitry and definition and basically how, how, your, how your energy body moves around itself, right? And, um, and those gates are basically superimposed over the 12 signs. So if you look at the, um, the sign of Scorpio, it will have about five and a half gates in it. And, you know, you kind of see some astrologers like arrive at that same point through their tools where they say like, oh, that's funny that people that are born on like, you know, zero to 10 degrees Scorpio seem to have this quality in common and people born in like 11 to 15 degrees Scorpio seem to have this in common, whatever, you know, you break it up into those degrees in astrology sometimes anyway. But human design gives you these very definite and obviously more specific um, demarcations of attitude through the through that superposition of the gates on the signs got it and there are if i recall correctly five major sort of types oh yeah 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 so that's that kind of basically says nothing about like personality or, or quality of character really those um those types that i assume you're talking about like the generator manifesting generator manifester projector and reflector right those are the five yeah um yeah, so those um, those are basically like really broad descriptions of like how you're meant to interface with reality um, and don't really tell you a lot about like who you are or what you're into or, or anything more specific than that. It's just sort of like um, mechanically, like how are you disposed to like taking in other people and, um, and how, how much, how, what's your relationship to energy? You know, what kind of energy do you have access to? Like these are basically the kinds of things that you differentiate with type. Sure, that makes sense. Um, so how has it helped you personally? <laughs> um, I got, uh, I mean, I became a lot happier when I started letting myself be more myself. I mean, I think that would be true in any modality. You know, if you, if you can use any system to to make the relationship with yourself more sophisticated or whatever, to just like kind of recline into yourself and let yourself be more natural. Like that's always going to feel good. And, you know, and like human design gives like a much more mechanical explanation of why that feels good, but it's like, you could get there, you know, just through, just through discovering the right hobby, you know? Yeah. So what could others learn about themselves, Stuart? I mean, I imagine the same thing, but, like if someone came to you with no knowledge of it and would say kind of like probably in a nicer way, but like, what's in it for me? <laughs> you know what I mean? What would you tell them? <laughs> That's tricky. It depends a lot on the person, you know, and especially myself being a projector. It's like, if I'm asked that question, then like my answer to it is always like, whether I'm trying to or not, I'm going to be picking up on the other person's energy and where they're coming from when they're asking that question. And so my explanation of that would be like really individualized and really, you know, based on the context that I'm using them in and stuff. Kind of hard because, again, it's like with human design, it's like they it call itself the science of differentiation. So it really is just about breaking down like how 
like, and, and in really specific terms, like how unique every single person is and all these ways that are like, like totally imperceptible from the outside, like um, really understanding that at like the, the like nitty gritty grainy phenomenological level, like people are just straight up interfacing with the illusion of the world in with in totally different ways. And we kind of all like, even though our minds aren't necessarily aware of that, it, like, it's not like, I mean, you get into human design enough and you can kind of tell when you're talking to a projector or talking to a generator or something like that. But, um, but even if the mind isn't noticing stuff like that, it's like the body is like the, this wealth of unconscious material that we're carrying around all the time. It is receptive to like all this differentiation that people are, are bringing to us. It's like um, almost like our bodies are creating sympathy chemistry in response to whoever we're around, you know, like I'm sure you've had the experience of like someone being anxious around you and you're picking up on that anxiety, but it's much, much more nuanced than that. You know, it's like, we're doing all this unconscious communication, all this transmission to each other from, from body to body, regardless of what our minds are paying attention to. Sure. Um, question I just came up with. So in your personal opinion, why do you think it's so, it can be so difficult for us as humans to separate or to recognize that like unconscious, those unconscious signals that our bodies are giving off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, one way to think about it is like, cause our minds are here to serve a function according to human design, which is to, to, um, to be witness to the world and to like organize information and to keep track of stuff, you know, to have a memory. That's a very mental thing. Um, but the ascription of like decision-making to the mind, the idea that we're supposed to like rationalize our way through life or reason our way through life is supposedly um, a, a big part of what has brought, um, brought the world to all these collective crises that we're currently facing. Because the mind, you know, the mind is easily like, first of all, it's overworked by trying to both process reality and make decisions and response to reality all the time. It's like our bodies know what's good for us. If we, if we really were able to get our minds out of the way and we like let the body do its thing, it's not like we would, you know, step onto a bunch of hot coals or eat poison or whatever. Like the body knows what the fuck it's doing. Like, you know, animals obviously don't have a mind in the same way that we do and they're not going to go around eating poison or doing self-destructive things. Um, but as for why, why we're not witnessed all that, I think it would just, I mean, it's like already too much for the mind to account for how much it's trying to, um, trying to be in charge of, like, think about something like digestion, you know, digestion is like so complex. There's so many organs involved in that. So many enzymes produce so much shit going on, like all, all the time, even if you're eating, you know, just eating stuff totally without the mind's involvement, you know, automatic eating the energy of the body and the intelligence of the body is like so absorbed in that task of digestion if our minds had to be responsible for that and at the same time like breathe and at the same time notice what was around us or whatever like we got to have a partition of duty you know yeah good point cool so what we're going to do is we are going to do a relatively speaking live reading a live human design reading of me and so uh, you already sent me the report, but I'm just going to leave it to you to sort of let us know what you got from the reading. Cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, do you do you have the chart in front of you? I do. Nice. Cool. Um, well, so typically when I give readings with people, I like send them a summary of like some basic stuff just so that we kind of start out on the same page. And then I usually begin the reading with just like anything that that stood out, right? So was there anything in the report that I sent you that really resonated with you? I would say for sure, um, the emotional authority and pretty much everything pertaining to decision making, um, because <laughs> I grew up. So one thing about me, I, I'm a preacher's kid. And so like I grew up like as a people pleaser by nature. There's something that I've been made aware of probably within the last five, six years. And I've been like more actively attacking that, but I mm. still find that me as a people pleaser by nature, I can sort of rest to decisions and it takes me, I, I have to like 
sort of peel back now and recognize like, am I making this decision because it's my decision or is it because I, I feel rushed to make a decision or is it because I just think this is what will be best for that person or what this person will want? Oh, interesting. So you like, feel like you're, you have this like sort of built in whatever sense of duty or obligation, or like you take on the, the motivations or the priorities of people in your life without checking in with whether that's something that you really want by nature. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've definitely gotten better with it over time, but yeah, that, that was 100% my nature. Mm. And, and that you felt like that was something that was kind of um, shown in the body graph or in the report as well. Um, the body graph itself is kind of, I, I guess for me to, to my naked eye, um, it's a little bit, more foreign to me but yeah in the, in the reading you know just about the defined sacral center and you know being able to make decisions in the in you know in the gut but also with the emotional authority needing to live slower and get in touch with my design you know versus the world that wants the instant answers mm. yeah yeah well it's um i mean you know your only two open centers here are the head and the ajna so like the idea like wanting answers is like one of the things that you're most susceptible to right i mean in a way the the thing that you're most susceptible to like if your only open centers are head and ajna then it's like so much of the not self conditioning is going to be like around arriving at certainty about stuff or or feeling like you um like there's uh pressure to know or whatever or picking up on other people's questions and mistaking them for your own basically which kind of sounds like what you were describing earlier but yeah, it's like, so, I mean, just to give a little context, it's like when you look at a body graph, whatever is, whatever is undefined, whatever is shown as white on the body graph, like that's, that's like your windows, your openings to life. And that's like where you take in other people. And in your case, only having two centers where you're taking in other people. I mean, you can, you can take in other people through like open, open channels and open gates and things, but like the locus of your, of your not self is going to be in the realm of ideas and in the the realm of mental pressure, basically taking on other people's concerns, but it's like another person, you know, someone be somebody with like um, with open solar plexus, for instance, would be taking on other people's feelings. They'd be picking up on their, on their emotional wave, like on their anxiety or on their, or on their um, excitement or on their, or picking up their depression or whatever. So it's like, whatever, whatever's open, that's where you take in the other person. And, you know, you've got more definition than most people. Like, I want to say the average is like, you know, four centers defined, five undefined, something like that. Having, having this little openness is like relatively unusual, but it's not, and it's not that it means you take in less from people. It just means that the aperture, you could say, of where you take in other people is narrower. So you absorb so much of people through their thoughts, through their priorities, through their minds. Um, you take them in very deeply through this this narrow little window. Hmm. Just to back up a little bit, just for for the listener, really, um, from a human design perspective, can you sort of define like self and not self and the head and the Ajna center just on like a, like a basic ground level? Yeah, definitely. Um, so not self is basically the... <laughs> the person that we're all going around in all the time. I mean, not self is like, we're all basically conditioned to be what we're not. Like um, we are most attracted to difference basically. And so we are, and we're all kind of conditioned to try and be everything. So a lot of the times people end up living out most of the centers that are, that are undefined, that are not really authentic to them. Um, for instance, a, a projector or a manifester, somebody with an open sacral center tends to like, you know, at their job, be working harder than anybody else, even though they have less energy to use um, at, at their job. And then someone with open head and ajna like yourself, like these are the people that are using more mental energy than the people that have defined ajnas because it's like, they're so, they're so interested in the realm of, in the realm of ideas or whatever, or in the in knowledge acquisition, in the use of the mind. The idea is that you'd be, you're really seduced by the use of the mind because you're intended to 
over time become very wise about what is an appropriate use of the mind. The reason that these centers are open and that we're drawn to them is because we're here to learn about like how they operate, but people get into trouble when they start to identify with what's coming in through those centers. So it's like, like for you, the, the, you're, you're in this life to learn what the mind is about fundamentally. And you're going to have a better sense, you know, especially the more you live your design, you're going to have a better sense of what the mind is and what it can do than like anybody. But meanwhile, it's like the mental content that you're absorbing from other people can be so, you, you're basically absorbing it from them so effortlessly and so automatically that you start to mistake it for your own. So it's like you can you can like be hanging out with people and like thoughts will pop into your head and you'll think they're your thoughts, but they're actually belong to somebody in the room with you. You know, um, there's always a piece of advice I give to people with undefined head in Ajna, which is never, never sign a contract one on one in a closed room. Because if that person's got like different priorities than you and they're like sending out this like thought energy that contradicts your own interests, you may not be able to notice that at the moment because you're just like absorbing so much from this person. So if you have to sign an important document, try and do it in public. Got it. And what you just said also, it, it kind of ties into, I think you had it in your report as well, but what I got from when I did the report, you know, way back when earlier this year about, you know, just having to wait to respond because there's no truth in it now for me, because I, I guess that it comes with that emotional wave of, of figuring out how I feel and, and differentiating my, my thoughts from, from other people's thoughts. So it kind of ties into that, I feel like. Oh, yeah, right. You're right, because you're, that's a really good point, because your decisions shouldn't be predicated on thoughts anyway, right? You should be following that emotional wave as an emotional authority person. So, so what is your understanding of that emotional authority for you so far? So two, two of the bigger things that I picked up from it is, one, we already kind of talked about it a little bit, but sort of marching to the beat of my own drum in a sense of waiting for myself to come to clarity versus someone else's time frame. Obviously, I can't do that so much in the workspace, but to whatever extent I can leverage that, um, you know, it's something for me to recognize and, you know, to not make an immediate decision, but also to trust that decision when I make it. Because another thing that I saw Another thing about me is that like I've always sort of wanted like this and like an older person to like look up to to be like a mentor to me. And I've kind of found people that kind of resemble the archetype of what I would want. But because mm. of my journey, we would kind of like it would kind of there would kind of be a tangent there. Like, for example, during my time when I was a, a Christian, like there were people in the church that I would sort of look up to and be like, I want to be like this guy. This guy has a great family. He loves God. I want to be just like this guy. And then <laughs> when I wasn't a Christian anymore, like I would still talk, you know, some of these people and there would be respect there, of course. But then there was also this sense of like not really meeting me where I was at. And mm. instead of being like, OK, you're this Daniel, you're this person now. You know what I mean? Like, how can I meet you where you're at? It was kind of like okay, Daniel, so when are you going to come back to the Lord? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, and and yeah. it was like, man, I can't really, like, look at this person in the, like, obviously, again, respect is there, but it was like, I can't really, like, model myself after this person because my life path is now different. And one of the mm -hmm. things that was kind of affirming to me from human design is that there's not really a role model for me, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I, I have to be that. Like I have to, I have to like cut through the trees, cut through the bushes and kind of like, you know, create that own path. And it's something that I'm kind of used to at this point. But if I would have read that in like 2017, I'd be like, fuck, that sounds like tiring. Like I don't even have the strength to cut. Like that's a lot of cutting, you know? Um, mm. so yeah, that was just kind of another thing that was eye opening for me. <laughs> nice. Damn. Yeah. I like, as you said that, I'm like seeing a lot of that there in your chart Were you, and, but you, um, in the whole role model thing and the like cutting through stuff, you're talking specifically about like the whole sixth line life trajectory thing. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's a big thing. Um, so yeah, just for context, that's, uh, the, you're, you're a six, two, that's your profile. So on top of like the mechanics, the whole like interfacing with reality, energetic stuff that you're looking at when you look at someone's chart, 
basically on top of that, there's a costume that you wear in life, um, which for you literally is the role model, as you mentioned, um, the role model consciously and the hermit unconsciously. And yeah, and you're like 35 now, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. 35. Right, right, right. So, um, so beginning at age 30, the, so this is like basically the only profile there is that has like this really radical metamorphosis where it's like the first 30 years of your life, you're going out into the world, acquiring as much experience as possible, making as many mistakes as possible, because those mistakes basically um, are, are very socially productive. Like, the, like, hopefully you're spending the first couple decades of your life breaking a ton of shit, because like when you're breaking shit, then it shows people how stuff can be made better. So it's really, really healthy for you to have that experience of breaking stuff. Um, it exposes, exposes um, yeah, flaws and weaknesses and shit. Um, but then when you starting at age 30, it's like you become less and less interested in that kind of experimentation, less and less interested in like clanging around um, whatever, and you become aloof. And they say it takes about seven years. They call it going on the roof. And you, um, you like what happens in your life, like superficially, like that doesn't have to change. You know, you could be, you could be working at the same job. You could be hanging out with the same people. You could be going to the same places, but it's like when you do show up to that job or when you do go to a party, it's like your, um, your experience of it, it becomes more and more, more and more aloof more and more detached as you come into this like six line-ness of this phase of your life and the reason that this happens the reason that you become in a way less enmeshed with reality becoming more absent is to get this sort of like wider perspective on stuff because you have those 30 years of experience you see what happens when when you know people go into the world and experiment whatever and now you're like working on getting perspective you like um by disentangling yourself from the like drama and the cacophony of like everyday experimentation, you get a better sense of it, like how it all fits together. And then later in life, like 49 or so you come off the roof again and you re-enter life having both the experience and the perspective. And that's when you really only become a role model and base. And it's not a role model of any particular quality that you have or any particular skill that you carry or anything like that. Basically you become a role model of how to be yourself and you, and you get to uniquely demonstrate that in a way that nobody else gets to and yet benefits everyone. So it's like you come into this extreme specificity with who you are and that specificity has this universalizing auric emanation. That, so it's like you don't it's not like you have to try to be a teacher when you get to that point just like how you go and order a cup of coffee or whatever that is a teaching act for whoever is there to observe it. that's what you're aiming towards <laughs> later in life and the, and uh there's also we could talk a little bit about the vulnerability that comes with those life transitions too um yeah six lines a really fascinating profile again it's the only one that really evolves in these dis- discrete phases mm. And just to back up a little bit, because I don't think we, we talked about this, but out of like the five major types, I am a manifesting generator. Can you oh, yeah. kind of like on a basic level, can you define that? Yeah, um, I would preface that mo- with the, the idea that uh, manifesting generators and generators are mostly the same thing. Very, very similar. And that distinction is like important to make for a few specific things. But generally, if you're a manifesting generator and you're reading stuff about generators, that's going to apply to you, you know, 99 times out of 100. But yeah, basically, the thing about being a generator or a manifesting generator is having so much energy, basically, that you get to start every day with a full tank of energy that you that you have to use up and that you are supposed to use up on expenditures that are satisfying. And it doesn't matter whether that that's like like physical labor or making art or like playing sports or like hanging out or whatever, any like use of energy. The only thing that tells you that that's the appropriate use is the feeling of satisfaction. Satisfaction is like the key word for generators and manifesting generators. Basically, you're designed to wake up with that energy, start using on, on stuff that makes you feel good do that continuously all day until you're totally out of energy and then you just 
you know, your head hits the pillow totally depleted and you fall asleep in a state of feeling totally spent and in total rest, right? And then you wake up and do it again. But nobody lives like that, right? Like how many, how many generators out there actually get to do that? Right. Yeah, yeah. But that, but so, I mean, the idea, the reason that that feels good is because that is like the feeling of being yourself. Like satisfaction is like your key, they call it an energetic signature. It's like your keynote that you're living authentically. You're, you literally are supposed to be satisfied all the time. Um, and if you, and you know, an animal, a, a mammal especially is, you know, could be a generator and you see how when they live without the imposition of the mind or whatever, they're pretty satisfied, you know, like even a domesticated animal that has all these humans sort of throwing the mind at it all the time. Like they know how to stretch. They know how to, when it's time to play, they know when it's time to eat, you know, they know like, like sat, like an animal has no trouble experiencing satisfaction if that's what's correct for them, you know, but we, we convince ourselves there's other uses of our energy that are somehow more important or more responsible or smarter than what our bodies actually want to be doing. Yeah. Cause on the flip side of that, it's, and this can also, I, I I'm reading your report. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about all the times where like, I've had this feeling of frustration where I've kind of, I've kind of made, you know, made a decision too quickly and maybe committed myself to something for a time. And then like, you know, only for me down the road for my body to say, mm, yeah, this, this ain't it. But then for me to keep doing it because it's like, oh, but you committed to it. And, you know, I'm sort of like powering through this thing that is not really giving myself satisfaction and I'm not ah. living my life the way I should as myself. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and that kind of, that does start to like raise the point that is the, the, the distinction between the generators and the manifesting generators is um, particularly sort of the, the license to dip out, to like recognize when you're misappropriating your energy and like quit basically. Manifesting generators kind of can get away with, um, with withdrawing their energy from an activity in a way that, that um, pure generators can't. So, it, so speaking to that distinction, that's kind of like what it's about. Um, but, you, but you're right that that's, I mean, because it's like if if a if a pure generator gets caught up like using their energy, misusing their energy, and experiencing all this frustration or whatever, um, they kind of have to close the loop on what they're doing before they before they start using their energy correctly, and. Um, which is also, by the way, why they say that manifesting generators, you know, get to, you know, start 50 projects and only finish one, right? Because it's like, you know, you start washing the dishes and then you decide you need to work on art before the dishes are done. And then you, and then you're getting hungry. So you decide to use your energy to cook, whatever. It's like, you can, you can follow those like little, those little threads. You can kind of play connect the dots with your energy with manifesting generators in a way that, that pure generators don't have license to do. I'm looking at my my definition also from your report, the simple split. Yeah. It's it's talking about how my throat connects to my heart and solar plexus, but they don't connect to my other four centers. And right. so um, and so can can you kind of like explain a split definition? Yeah, definitely. So there's um so there's single definition people where all their centers are connected into one piece of circuitry. There's split definition people like you where a few centers are attached to each other and then there's like another little island of centers that are all attached, but those two islands don't connect to each other. And then there's triple splits where you got three discrete um, energetic clusters. And then you even, and this is very rare, but you even have quad splits where there's like four islands of activity. Um, but that's like less than one in a hundred people or something. So most people are splits like yourself. I think it's around 45% of people or whatever. And the thing with being split definition is it's like, however your, your split is bridged, whatever, whatever gates, whatever kind of energy is going to bring those two sides of you together, you get really, really into. And you kind of spend your whole life either consciously or unconsciously seeking that energy out um, through, through other people or whatever. And I mean, like nine times out of 10 split definition, people end up in relationships with people that bridge their split because when, when you, all it takes is being an aura with someone who does that, 
to to feel complete you could say because normally it's like you have these two sides of yourself that and if someone's not bridging your split they're typically invoking one or the other side of yourself so in your case they would either be um they would either be soliciting your like manifestor side essentially your um your heart solar plexus throat stuff which would be all about like um getting things done or bringing a sense of community to things but your other cluster of islands has all these other capacities that you provide like the capacity to struggle you know so some people are going to want you around when they want the endurance to be able to struggle something important other people are going to want you around when you're bringing a sense of community whatever that can get much more specific than this but the people that you most enjoy being around are the people that are bridging that split and allowing you to bring all that that you have to offer in one relationship um and for this reason also it's like split definitions got to be a little careful of codependency too because if someone bridges your split in just the right way it's like you can get so addicted to the energy that they're bringing because it allows you to be so much of yourself in this sort of like self-contained fleeting sense of of completion hmm. sounds dangerous but <laughs> <I'm following. laughs> well now well, it's on the one hand so they say about split definition people that they're like wired for monogamy so that probably is going to be like a persistent truth in your life and probably for most split definition people out there it's because it's like you really you're also sort of going to be as a split definition person inherently smarter about relationships in general like how to keep a relationship alive the the risk i think that happens with split definition people is they get so into keeping the relationship alive they might lose sight of whether they even like whether they like the person or they like the relationship you know, because, because that person's bringing them that sense of completion or whatever, it's like that, per, you know, someone that you've been with for a long time may not even be um, healthy for you, even though the relationship just like on an energetic level and like the kind of energy that they're providing you is still like good for you. It's like you're holding each other back by being together. And that's kind of what codependency is. It's like you, you get sort of a chemical physiological benefit from from remaining in that person's life but you would both probably be of better use elsewhere and but but then you don't want to let yourself move on to better things you don't want them to move on to better things because you at the same time are recognizing this incredible practical advantage to being together all the time mm. just something to be cautious of you know just checking in once in a while i mean and you're you got like, there's, I think, three ways to bridge your split or whatever. So, so the, the advantage of that, so it's like, basically, there, there are three different gates that could bridge your split within one gate. There's also people that could offer you full channels that would bridge your split, but typically that would not be as attractive to you. Um, but, but when you find someone who has one of these specific gates that bridges your split, that feels really good. That's like super exciting. That's like, you know, you know, the experience of having sparks in a relationship, basically of having chemistry with somebody. Um, but because there's three different ways to do that in your case, it would be like, that's more of a diversity of kinds of people that can do that for you. I think the people that typically end up getting most that the split definition people that end up getting most codependent are those where their split is only bridged by one gate and they only, and only that one quality really does it for them. And then they finally find someone who has that one quality and it's perfect. And they really don't want to let that person go, you know? Right. That makes sense. And then I've seen people with like seven bridging gates, you know, and they're getting, they're getting, they're, they're feeling complete by like all kinds of random strangers and shit, yeah. just statistically. <laughs> now you, you brought up channels uh, a second ago. Can you, can you explain the channels a little bit? Oh yeah. So a channel is basically, um, so, so each center is comprised of gates, which are basically like connection points for energy to circulate. And when that connection point meets a point on the other side, then it creates a line of energetic transmission, a line of communication. And that, that transmission is what activates the centers. So all those centers that you have that are defined like the spleen is defined because it has a continuous channel, it has a continuous path to the root center through that channel of struggle. So if you only had half that channel, then that spleen wouldn't be connected to anything and the spleen would be 
um, would be open like the head or the ajna. So the channels are what create definition basically by, be, by allowing energy to circulate through different parts of yourself. Got it. So for what, for my body graph, which, which channels kind of should I sort of pay attention to? Um, I suppose the most important to pay attention to probably for anybody are those that, um, that define your authority center, which as we talked about for you is the, the solar plexus, the emotional wave. And because that's defined by two channels, actually, it, in a way that means you have two waves. From the solar plexus to the heart, you have a tribal channel, which gives you a tribal wave, which is sort of predicated on community and about being around people that you know, and through physical touch and smell and sharing food and all that. It's very social. Compared to your other channel, this 2212 is an emotional wave that really only comes into its correct shape and brings you to a state of emotional clarity when you're totally alone. Hmm. So it's like, if you want if you want to be able to surf these waves, you need to make sure that you're hanging out with people that you know, and that like you feel, you feel kinship with, but then you also really need to take alone time because there are, there are type, there are like um, levels to the emotional clarity that you're looking for. that can only be accessed in those circumstances or that are very much fed. They're very much nourished by being in those circumstances. And having, having two different kinds of a, emotional wave, by the way, is pretty unusual. It's not, it's not unheard of by any means, but um, I've heard a lot of mixed things about it from people that have it. Because on the one hand, people say like, oh, having two waves is nice because I never get swept away in any one wave. Because, you know, depending on where my other wave is at, it keeps me from getting like too excited, too manic or whatever. It keeps me from getting too depressed, you know, because while well, one wave is at the low end, the other wave might be at the high end or whatever. But then other people say that it also makes clarity harder to recognize because if one wave is that, because typically clarity is like a subtler state, obviously, than being like really anxious or really excited or really depressed or whatever the case may be. You know, clarity, clarity is relatively quiet. And so if you've got one emotional state that's speaking to you very loudly while the other one is at clarity, but is not really as conspicuous, then it's like, might be hard to notice the body's consent, because that, that's essentially what clarity, what emotional clarity is for you, is the body voicing its consent to a decision. Does that tie into, I guess that second wave that need to be that need to be alone, does that tie into the two portion of my profile at all? Oh no, those, those definitely like um, you can see how those would help each other out, but but they one of them doesn't cause the other. That's just a nice natural harmony we got in your body graph. Uh, that that's two two good reasons to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, can you talk about that too? We talked about the this. You are, we already said I'm a six two, so the six is the role model. The two is the hermit. Can you talk about the hermit a little bit? Yeah. So basically, the hermit on the unconscious side, um, which is what it is for you, means that that unconsciously you are. Um, they call it the hermit because it isolates itself. Like you, your, your body really does like to be alone. And in its solitude, it is sort of perfecting really, really specific skills. And that's why it needs to be alone. Because basically, you could say that your body and your unconscious are working on these secret projects um, that, that no one else could, would be able to keep up with. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so it seeks out solitude as a way to kind of make sure that no one gets in its way. Um, but I mean, there's a, there's a lot to say about the second line, um, especially on the unconscious side, because, you know, people are obviously going to relate more to their, their, the conscious side of their profile than the unconscious, but, but that too is doing a lot for you. So basically, especially, you know, as you move into these later periods of your life, it's like, and you become this great teacher, it's like the two hermitude, the fact that your body and your unconscious has got sort of putting on this putting up these walls and sequestering itself off, like part of that is so that you don't waste time on the wrong people, right? Because if you're going to become this great teacher, you know, you can't be speaking to any like random bozo who's not ready to hear what you have to teach or not ready to witness what you have to teach, right? So you have to be a little hard to get to. Like people, people have to push a little bit to really like have an audience with you. <laughs> Sound, it, it, um, <laughs> That might sound a little arrogant or whatever, but it's true. You know, you're, you're, they're really, I mean, more and more, it's like you are going to be able to, to 
um, do things for people in, interpersonally that like no one else can provide. And I think I probably mentioned in the report for that same reason, it's like, you should be sponsored as a second line. Like people should be giving you free shit all the time because in a way you living your life is a public utility. You, because you're like, and I don't, I don't know you well enough to say what, what these skills are, but like you are like working on some secret unique shit that only you will be able to do in the future. And so if, if people are giving you the space and the freedom and, and the, the financial support or the emotional support or the, the whatever sort of pragmatic contribution they're offering, that's correct. That's like how you're supposed to operate. It's like you, you kind of live off the fat of the land, the excess production of society. And, you know, someone has a spare room or someone has a crop of vegetables or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's like for other people, reaping that benefit is sort of like a neutral circumstance. But for you, that's a sign you're living life as yourself because you're like designed to take it in this excess and convert it to your unique skill. <laughs> One of the things that is so interesting to me about human design. So I wish I remember which Bible verse it was, but um, when I was like into the Bible heavier, it was mm. it. The Bible was described as like a double edged sword. You know what I mean? So if you were living the right way, according to the Bible, then, you know, mm. one thing, but if you were not living according to the Bible, then that's kind of when the sword would kind of kind of cut you. And so human mm. design is interesting in a sense that like it, it kind of tells you who you are, but it's in a way that like if your ego kind of rejects something that you don't necessarily want to hear about yourself, mm. you, you, you know, you might respond unfavorably. But if it's telling you something that you feel like you were right about yourself or you had some kind of inclination towards it's like, yeah, 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 see. And so it's just kind of interesting how it kind of like toys with the ego that way. I would say toy with it, but you know what I mean? Like how yeah, it can kind of like expose the ego, I, I would say. Oh yeah, that's very real. I mean, and it's like, and um, you know, people are going to be like so differently sensitive to like different aspects of their openness or whatever. When you look at a chart, like, um, say somebody's growing up with undefined heart and undefined root or whatever, and they're around someone that just completes one of those for them, they have a lot more experience with like, say they're, they're growing up with someone who completes their root, but not their heart. The issues of the open root are going to be a lot more familiar to them through repeated exposure than the issues of the open heart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if, you know, like, have, you know, parents are our first conditioners, you know? So it's like, it's really helpful like when you're looking at your own chart to like understand also the the energy that you grew up with because it's like if you're whoever you're around all the time regardless of what they're doing with their time just being an aura with them is enough to like sort of indoctrinate you through that open center without even trying you know it can be you could have the most the best intentioned parents in the world but it's like they're still going to condition you you know like there's a limit to how in touch with our own selves we can be we're all we're always conditioning each other whatever our intentions are right is there anything else like in terms of human design that we haven't covered whether it be in my chart or whether it's about human design itself that you can think of that you want to kind of go over um there's definitely a million more things to talk about um in your chart but what's really pertinent here mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> I, well i don't know how interesting this will be to your listeners but i do like to leave people with some like really practical just like mundane stuff that you can start doing right away because i think it can be so useful yeah um like like uh diet and environments are are two things that um i find very helpful for everyone to think about um especially because yours is your diet is kind of one of the weird ones you got um you got hot digestion so the idea is that your digestive system literally runs cold so you want to be eating things that are above your body temperature exclusively so that you can warm up your digestive system while you're eating Mm. so that it can produce the enzymes it needs to produce (laughs) wow 
So you should, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, ideally, it's like you would never have ice cream again, right? But who's going to take it? <laughs> who's going to take it to that degree? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, then you got environment yours is markets which does mean literal markets where people are whatever selling goods and stuff but uh, but a market is basically any any environment where there's a mix of familiar and unfamiliar people as well as familiar people whose names you don't know i find that this is a key basically basically a market is a place where people of different backgrounds come together not for the purpose of production so actually, so a lot of parties would be an example of a market, especially if those parties are with people, people that, you know, as well as unfamiliar people. Um, or, oh yeah, I, a lot of markets environment people I know are really attracted to the idea of like communal living where you like have um, like several houses or several casitas or whatever, like on one property, um, because it's like this sort of mix between private residence and sort of this public forum, you know, this sort of like open, open area. But yeah, basically, basic, I mean, part of it, I mean, there, the, there is a basic distinction of a market being a, um, a developed place, right? So it's like, you w are always probably going to do a little better, both in terms of health and in terms of luck, you could say in, in, um, in cities and, and um, towns and like, living in the country would probably not be that great for you unless you had this like i guess whatever compound living situation with a bunch of friends and unfamiliar people but yeah, yeah, yeah. um oh um so, so i'm gonna move on to something else but did that stuff resonate with you so far yeah definitely, definitely. cool cool yeah, I, I don't know how much time we have but i do think it's really worth taking a moment for um motivation the subject of motivation I find really, really helpful. This is basically, so again, the premise of human design being never make a decision with the mind, only make a decision with the body. And in your case, the body speaking through a state of affective emotional clarity, that, that's how your body is trying to, trying to consent. But motivation is sort of like when the mind witnesses the body consenting, it forms around that consent, a sort of like mental structure which in your case is hope. So when you're having to make a big decision or whatever, and the justification or the rationale of hope factors into your decision-making, then that's a really, really good sign, basically. That means that, you're, that your mind is apparently noticing your body giving its consent, your body trying to direct you in a, in a, um, in a healthy way. Hmm. Um, and the, and the transference of hope is guilt. And so if guilt is ever factoring into your decision-making, that you should be really, really skeptical of that. Because that, because ba I mean, basically what, what this is trying to, what this is saying is like, you are cognitively not well-equipped to know what is and isn't your responsibility. So if you're making a decision predicated on guilt, you, you have a very, very like, basically low res evaluation of what you actually need to be responsible for. So it's like someone could very easily convince you that something is your responsibility when it's not, right? Or some, someone could really easily tell you that something isn't your responsibility when it is. And so for that reason, questions of responsibility, questions of guilt, questions of accountability shouldn't factor into your decision-making at all because you just can't rely on that justification. Um, but then hope, you could say that in a way you're like cognitively super equipped to know what is worth hoping for, to know what is a reasonable hope. Like, I mean, and obviously this sounds like a little more like far out and woo woo than something like guilt, which is like very pragmatic by comparison, but you really do know what's worth hoping for. And like, if you, if you are, if, if you are entering into a situation because you're hoping for a certain result, that hope is going to be well-founded. You don't know, you don't necessarily know why you're hoping that something's going to result from that. But the fact that you are hoping at all is a really, really positive sign. Super interesting. Yeah. Isn't that a fun one? <laughs> so it's like the, you know, the exact same situation could be presented to you. And if you are trying to decide how to respond to it and you're thinking along the lines of hope, 
then you automatically know to give more credence to it. And if you're thinking along the lines of guilt, then you know not to. Like if some if someone if uh, a friend of yours is like in the hospital and some and another friend is like we gotta go you know our friends in the hospital we should go see them, and you're trying to decide whether to go and you're thinking oh I have to go like if I go there's something I can do for them and like it's my responsibility to go and this person would go for me or whatever, you show up and you visit them for these like guilt derived reasons you're probably not going to have a very healing presence you know because the 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 line of thought that your like brain is constructing around the body's consent is like you interpreting what is going to be correct. So if the same situation is presented to you and, and your thought pattern is, Oh, I hope that if I show up there, this person will feel better. Well then, you know, you're probably going to go down there and you probably are going to have a really healing effect on that person, or you probably really are going to do something helpful, you know? So. Hmm. So in a way it's almost like, yeah, you create that reality. You kind of, in a way, I, I could kind of manifest how my presence is going to be by how I feel before I even get there. Right. Yeah. And it's like, and I suppose, like, you know, the mind is such a trickster and it probably could, like, fabricate a sense of hope when it's really going there for guilt. Like, we can lie to ourselves, right? Oh, yeah. And we can say that we're doing something for one reason or whatever. But, but you know, if you take your time with it, like... I mean, if it's a, like a big decision or whatever, you, you can tell when you're lying to yourself. You can, t- you can, the actual authentic hope, when you feel it, you'll really be feeling it, right? It won't just be a mental construct. It will come with that emotional clarity and that, that hope won't be contrived. It'll be a real, a real ass hope, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I was trying to think of like times where I've sort of felt that, but I, if nothing else, I know that that's something that I can keep in mind when making decisions and assessing how I feel in the future. So that's like very helpful, especially as like a people pleaser, like as a, like a recovering people pleaser too, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the fact that you got that defined heart too, you know, that that's relatively rare. That's only like 30% of people. And so all these people go, uh, going around out there with undefined heart, like I can see why, you want to be able because basically the heart's like the center of willpower and self-worth and shit and it's like statistically like you're probably around a lot of people that don't have consistent access to that and and but by being around you like they get to experience that and i can see why you would feel like obligated or whatever to keep providing that to them but you know obligation is such a guilt word you know so i mean so really yeah really be on the on the watch for that yeah um oh, there's one other thing i wanted to say about motivation i thought oh oh just that also for emotionally defined people such as yourself that are going to be like waiting out this wave when you make big decisions i feel like motivation is especially helpful because it like sort of gives you something to watch while you're waiting for clarity while you're waiting for your ex- excitement to subside and to come to a state of emotional calm you can check in with what the mind is doing. Even if you're not making decisions from the mind, you can just check out what it's up to. Sure, like a reference point of sorts. Exactly. Interesting. It's, it's funny, like, I kind of, I had my notes before I came here, and then I had your notes, and I was like, I still feel like I was unprepared for this. So in, in a good way, of course, but yeah, it's like, I don't know, learning about yourself is cool, I guess. Yeah, it's crazy how deep it goes, too. Like, I mean... Yeah, you could look you could look at your chart, you know, for the rest of your life and keep finding new stuff. Like we haven't even gone into like we went to personality lines, but you know, all the planets like have lines and then under lines there's color and then there's oh, and then there's the nodes, like um what what you're supposed to be like witnessing and it just goes on and on. But all you really have to know though is the whole strategy and authority thing. The strategy just being in the, which we actually didn't touch on too much, but it's just kind of part of being a generator where it's like, you're automatically bringing stuff to you, which is why you're always supposed to respond. You're never supposed to initiate, never supposed to make moves out of the blue. You should never have to get anyone's attention because you, when you're, when you're yourself, you'll be drawing people towards yourself, the right people. We're drawing the right people towards yourself. So you don't have to say, Hey, you, or whatever. Um, and then the authority obviously being that emotional wave that we talked about. So, so just those two things, you know, the, the response and then the emotional clarity, that's all you really need from a human design reading. And the rest is just the detail. 
So as the as the generator, there isn't anything that one would consciously needs to do. It would just be by by just off the strength of the aura, the generator would attract whatever it is, and then once it's attracted, they would wait using the emotional. Well, for me, you I would use my emotional authority to wait it out and come to a decision based on my, what my body is telling me. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, someone's like, um, uh, Hey, do you want to go to the beach? And if you haven't been thinking about going to the beach at all in the moments, you might have a, you might have a really enthusiastic reaction or whatever. And then a little bit of time passes and, and we don't want the mind to interfere with this process, but just on a peer effective level, some time passes and then you're like less stoked on it than you were before. And then you wait a little longer and then you get stoked on it again. Or, or maybe you don't, maybe you get really fatalistic about it, whatever. It's like, you can never trust what you're feeling about it is in the moment. You just triangulate it over time. So it's like, oh, when I was most psyched about this, I wanted to do it. When I was the least psyched about it, I still kind of wanted to do it. And now that I'm like neither pessimistic or optimistic, I still want to do it. That's when you know that you should do it, basically. Got it. Yeah, I think I saw, it, I forget which website it was, but I think for me, I, I, I would come to a decision with roughly 75 to 80% certainty. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> I think I read that somewhere. I was like, that's nice. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> See what I can do. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, when you know, you know, and I, I just wouldn't worry about being stu- too strategic with it, you know, be, being a generator, being emotionally defined. And also another thing we didn't talk about being right variable on the personality side, you're really supposed to go with the flow about life in general, acting from response, not trying to like, you know, make moves or scheme about what makes sense to take action on, but just really kind of feeling, feeling it out. Like when there's a big decision, taking your time with that feeling so that you make sure that you're not acting on momentary excitement. And then also just like noticing what comes to you. Because again, being a generator means having this really attractive aura and sort of automatically summoning summoning before yourself representations of yourself. Opportunities coming coming to you almost like a gravitational pull or whatever. And it doesn't mean that you're only attracting stuff into your orbit that's good for you, which is why you wait it out and see how and see whether you still feel good about it a few minutes later or a few days later, depending on the size of the decision. But yeah, it, it comes to you and you don't and you don't have to plot or scheme or be strategic about about bringing it to you. It automatically comes. Got it. Is there anything else that sort of human design related that you, you feel necessary to share? <laughs> I mean, again, infinite depth, but I think we covered a lot of the essentials. And I mean, you and here's so here's the thing as a projector, you know, I've got this open sacral center and I actually don't know when enough is enough. It's, mm. it's up to, to for generators to, to tell me when we're done. <laughs> so if, if, if you feel it's a wrap, then you're right. I have no way of knowing. <laughs> <laughs> human, human design and practice. And that's actually super helpful yeah. because my girlfriend is a projector. And so like, that is a lesson that I can store as a data point and know for the future. So, oh, very useful. Yeah. So, um, uh, is slower to notice when she's out of energy than you are. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But on that note, I do think we covered a good amount of information, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time to even cover the information and you know share the space with me. Is there anything else that you want to say in general or, you know, about yourself that you may want anyone to know? No pressure. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've been running this, uh, this human design Twitter account, which is, I believe what you found me through, um, which is hum- at human design fact. And that's like, that's basically me um, crowdsourcing a bunch of like human design trivia um, and I'm kind of just throwing a bunch of like random data at the wall about human design, which seems to help people here and there. Um, but you know, it's like, it's weird because again, it's the science of differentiation. So when I'm like putting that stuff up there, like as a curator, you know, it's like, I feel like I, I'm obligated to a certain level of neutrality, but anyway, that's, that's a resource that I provide and that's fun to do, but 
I don't, I, I don't really have a personal human design presence on the web yet. Oh, I do have a website for readings and that's attunement.info. Um, I would say personally, as someone who has gotten information about themselves from websites that it's definitely helpful to get it from a reader. Um, for sure. Yeah. You get it. You just get insight that text can't provide. Text can only do it so much, but yeah, it just it's just different when you get it from someone who who is in the space versus you know something generated from a website. So I just want yeah. to reiterate by by saying that. And again, <laughs> I greatly appreciate you. You know, if anyone is interested, definitely definitely reach out to and connect to to Mike at the website or on the Twitter at least. Um, my my social media is at the Water Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, so definitely feel free to follow that. I try to sort of provide insight behind what I'm talking about here. So definitely check us out. And I think that's all I got. Thanks again, Mike. And everyone have a beautiful day. All right. Nice chatting with you. Take care.